Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in today's episode, I speak to author, novelist, and screenwriter Norman Oler. Norman is the author of Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany, a book that chronicles the German pharmaceutical industry and its invention of methamphetamine and the role that Pervitin, as it was known at the time, played in the Second World War, and controversially also discusses the um, drug use of Adolf Hitler himself. So it's a great uh, and exciting and, and crazy piece of history. So I hope and I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation. Hello, Norman Oler. Hi. Very happy to have you on. You are the author of Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany. Uh, the original title in Germany, I believe, is uh, Der Totale Rausch, uh, which roughly translates to the complete intoxication. How does Germany come to be a major player in the production of chemicals? What, what's the background here? Well, when I started researching this book on drugs in the so-called Third Reich, I wanted to start in 1933 with Hitler coming to power and basically becoming the, the leader of the first anti-drug government. And uh, my mentor at the time, the uh, historian Hans Mommsen, said that I should look at the development of the German pharmaceutical industry to put the whole topic into context, which was a very wise suggestion, very interesting chapter that then opened up, uh, which describes how in the uh, 19th century, German pharmaceutical companies actually became um, more and more important for the overall development of the German society and, of course, uh, economy by being quite innovative, inventing mm -hmm. drugs and substances and thus supplying the large German population with uh, much needed drugs and substances in contrast to other um, European nations, uh, England or France, Germany didn't have a lot of colonies, mm. couldn't, <clears throat> couldn't import natural stimulants and mm -hmm. uh, exotic substances like some other countries could, and so had to produce them for themselves. And this is how the German pharmaceutical industry came into play and became big and important. Yeah, absolutely. So who then invents um, methamphetamine? This was a chemist called Fritz Hauschild. He was the chief chemist of a Berlin-based um, pharmaceutical company called Temmler, which mm -hmm. still exists today. And this happened in the after the Olympic Games, where rumors had it that the American athlete Jesse Owens was using benzodrine, an American amphetamine. That's why he was more successful than the Germans. That's that that those were the rumors, even though there was no um, drug testing at those Olympic Games in '36 in Berlin. But afterwards, the head of the Temmler company, Theodor Temmler, asked his main chemist, his chief chemist Hauscher, to develop an even better stronger stimulant and how should then started research and found out that in 1917 in Tokyo a Japanese chemist had already worked on a methamphetamine and then how should um, found a new way of uh, synthesize this um, potent uh, compound and Temmler turned it into a product that was patented 
in, I believe, October 30th, 1937, and then came onto the market in 1938 in Germany. But you mentioned, right, that the, the Nazis were officially an anti-drug party, um, which is a little bit strange in the context of um, them then inventing methamphetamine effectively. Um, but taking a step back historically, um, what role did drugs play in the Weimar Republic in the period uh, before Hitler takes power in 1933? Usually it is depicted, the Weimar Republic is, is depicted as a drug-tolerant society. Um, this is the myth of the crazy and golden and um, intoxicated and, of course, troubled uh, um, Weimar Republic, the 20s uh, mm -hmm. in Germany. And in fact, um, the drug laws that um, the Nazis were using after 33 were, are the same drug laws that were already in effect during the Weimar Republic. But it, during the Weimar Republic, they were not enforced. Mm. Um, so the difference actually is in enforcing those laws. Uh, this, is, this is the different policy that the Nazis introduced. So during the Weimar Republic, you had some kind of drug laws, the opium law, it was called, but no one really probably knew about it or took great care of, uh, you know, enforcing it. Um, drugs were somewhat accepted also culturally. Um, they were, there were films about drugs. Um, drugs were widely available, especially in Berlin, which was then coined as the, the Babylon of, of cities. Um, I mean, there was a more serious background for this Germany having to deal with or the society having to deal with uh, lots of casualties from the first world war many mm -hmm. men soldiers former soldiers were still wounded or ailing from their uh, wounds or, or simply morphine addicted uh, because they had been given morphine during during the war so it was kind of a practical approach I would say that Drugs were used in the Weimar Republic, not ostracized. That is kind of the overall picture we get from the Weimar Republic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you chronicle in the book that the Nazis, at least in part, styled themselves as an antidote to 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 Weimar decadence, right? To uh, yeah, yeah, bringing you know Germans back into some sort of more organic state, I suppose. So what exactly? Um, was their stance on drugs, at least in the beginning, in, in 1933 and after? Well, the Nazi stance on drugs was actually always a very negative, prohibitive stance. Um, they considered themselves as the Saubermänner, the, the clean-cut <laughs> regime that would rid Germany of all the poisons that were weakening mm -hmm. uh, the people, um, the different categories and types of poisons that they identified. Um, the worst poison, uh, obviously, were the Jews. So the anti-Semitic uh, propaganda of the Nazis was always connected with the racist Nazi ideal of purity, pure purity mm -hmm. of the nation. And drugs were also, uh, were also dirty, were also impure, uh, also had to be eradicated from society. That's why also anti-Semitic and anti-drug uh, propaganda, uh, especially in the beginning, 1933, from 1933 onwards, was linked. Um, there were uh, allegations that Jews were using more drugs than non-Jews, um, especially Jewish doctors were all addicted in Berlin, all using morphine. Mm -hmm. 
because of their weak nerves, they all had to take drugs. So the Nazis used anti-drug policy from the beginning. And this is actually a pair, you can draw a parallel to other anti-drug regimes uh, of modern society to um, punish minorities. Um, and this actually never changed. I mean, even when um, methamphetamine was invented uh, and put on the market, it was not invented by the Nazis. It was invented by a German company. So mm-hmm. they were a capitalist uh, a capitalist uh, entity, which was just looking for something to make a profit. And methamphetamine was not also seen as a drug like cocaine or morphine in the beginning. It was um, was called a wachmacher, a wake, an agent that wakes you up. So there was nothing mm-hmm. bad about that. Um, in fact, the claim of Nazi Germany was Deutschland erwache, Germany wake up. So to have a uh, medicine on the market that would wake you up, that would keep you awake longer so you can work longer and you can go to the party meeting in the evening and you can mm-hmm. just be more enthusiastic about your daily chores and your daily life was actually fitting right into you know, the overall mood and um, and uh, uh, tendency that was that was prevailing in those days. So they were always against drugs, dangerous, dirty drugs, but they loved methamphetamine up to a point uh, that is, um, I mean, that there was a point when the German army was starting to use methamphetamine on a wide scale. And then the Nazi health minister, the so-called Gesundheitsführer, the health Führer, Leo Conti, approached the Wehrmacht and said, listen, guys, this is against Nazi policy. We are giving uh, soldiers stimulants. The German soldier doesn't need a stimulant because the German soldier is a superhuman Aryan uh, person that has more powers anyhow. So why do we need to use artificial stimulants? So um, that is that that. Then actually the the contradiction between uh, yeah. the goal to produce a drug-free society and then using something like methamphetamine to increase the fighting capabilities of the army uh, came into light. Yeah, right. But I mean, as you described, at least for a moment, the uh, methamphetamine specifically really fit the zeitgeist of, of uh, Nazi Germany or Nazi propaganda, I suppose. And I think it really parallels this or it, it goes along with this obsession with uh, productivity in Third Reich Germany, which, as you say, right, was partly fueled by this lack of access to natural resources, which for Germany was especially problematic in the context of a great power rivalry, because exactly as you described, Britain and France could always tap these vast colonial empires for things like rubber, oil, steel. Um, but as you say, also for more mundane things like coffee or sugar. And uh, the U.S. could rely on this vast, resource-rich country together with an enormously big internal market, uh, allowing economies of scale and production. Historians like Adam Tooze have presented um, sources that indicate uh, that several Weimar Republic Germans like um, Stresemann, for example, were acutely aware of this geoeconomic situation that was kind of to the detriment of Germany. Um, And they were concluding that Germany would only be able to attain similar levels of production and consumption if they were part of uh, a greater uh, pan-European free trade regime that would be closely associated with the United States that would allow it access to natural resources, but also, you know, big export markets. But of course, you know, there was a big other vision, and, and that was a vision, you know, of colonial expansion effectively, 
which uh, Hitler and the Nazis saw in the east of Europe. But in this quest, you know, productivity always played a huge role, productivity, innovation, um, because, you know, the Germans really saw themselves short on everything, right? Like resources, manpower, but also time. They were outgunned, politically encircled, um, but really felt that there was a window. If they could only mobilize the economy and population fully and faster uh, than its assumed opponents. So innovations in artificial fuel, you were mentioning this, for example, and other substitutes were thought to potentially circumvent blockades and overcome this disadvantage that Germany saw themselves as. And I think all of this is mirrored, really, in your story about drugs in the Third Reich or methamphetamine specifically, because effectively they were seeking a physical productivity boost through this pharmaceutical industry that they were having. So, So what role do you think did methamphetamine play in the preparation for war? Um, There was one professor in Berlin, his name was Otto Ranke. He was the um, head of the Army Physiological Institute at the um, Medical Academy uh, on Invalidenstraße right here in Berlin. He was responsible for, in a way, performance enhancement of the army. Mm -hmm. So he was um, also doing things like developing new helmets or making suggestions for different cloth for uniforms, which might be, you know, more or less sweat intensive, stuff like that. And he was particularly interested in the question of fatigue. Uh, He had done research Mm. that proved how fatigue would actually uh, diminish the capabilities of a soldier, which sounds, you know, normal, you know, it makes sense, makes all the sense in the world. So he was actually trying to find a solution, trying to find something against fatigue. So when he read the first university findings uh, on methamphetamine, on pavitine, as the product was called, which stressed that on methamphetamine, one needs to sleep less. He became very interested and he did tests on uh, young medical officers, uh, voluntary tests, even placebo-controlled tests uh, here in Berlin at the Medical Academy and found out that, in fact, methamphetamine does keep away um, sleep. So he... Um, approached his superior, the Surgeon General of the German Army, and suggested to uh, stack, stash, use this um, medication, put it into the medical supply bags of the medical officers. And but he received a rejection by the Surgeon General. Surgeon General basically didn't understand what he meant. So he was too old school for Ranke. Ranke was already imagining the soldier of the future while his superior was not comprehending what he was actually talking about when he said, let's use a chemically produced stimulant to increase fighting capabilities. So when Germany attacked Poland, uh, started World War II on uh, September 1st, 1939, the German army had not yet, um, was not yet officially supplied with methamphetamine, but Ranke, knowing that methamphetamine, this product, pervitin, was quite popular in Germany. I did a survey among medical officers. We co- uh, wrote to them uh, in the field and after the campaign was finished, I requested from them to give him reports whether pervitin was used and if it was used, what were the effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these reports, quite a lot of them actually, um, are now gathered in the military archive of Germany. And I studied them and they were... And Ranke obviously studied them uh, 
immediately when he received yeah. them in October 1939 and found out that uh, mostly medical officers were praising um, the drug, saying that it decreased um, fighting inhibitions, it increased euphoria in the battlefield, it wiped away depression and fear. And um, Ranke was now quite in, became quite enthusiastic about the drug and again uh, went to his superiors and um, made a report saying because he knew that the West might be attacked because this was you know the next plan of Hitler to to invade Belgium, Holland, and France that amphetamine methamphetamine should be used there. Again, uh, the reaction was hesitant, but then. On February 17th, 1940, um, Hitler adopted a new attack plan, which was presented to him by three tank generals, uh, Rommel von Manstein and Guderian. They were kind of the young, crazy tank guys who suggested a completely new strategy, which, which was based on time. In a way, they invented the Blitzkrieg, but no one used that term yet at mm. the time. And I guess the, the campaign against Poland also was a kind of Blitzkrieg because it was so fast. But with the attack on France, the, these tank generals said, we have to use the tanks at the forefront of our army formation and that they have to charge into enemy territory as fast as they can and, and, and just continue going. Mm -hmm. And especially they would have to go through the Aden Mountains, not through the north of Belgium where the... Um, French and British forces were actually waiting for the Germans to attack, but they had to go, they, they should go through the mountains, um, the Ardennes mountains, like the, the eye of a needle, basically, which was not heavily fortified by the allies and reach um, the border city, French border city of Sedan within three days and three nights without stopping. Mm. And um, anyone who has tried to stay awake for three days and three nights knows that this is basically impossible. So there was a lot of skepticism in the spring of 1940 whether this plan could work. But suddenly, Ranke's idea of supplying um, the army with um, a medication that would actually make it possible to stay awake for three days and three nights became, um, became popular. And Ranke gave lectures in front of generals and then had to write up the so-called stimulant decree, which was um, the first official paper in military history that actually ordered or at least installed um, a chemically produced uh, drug uh, into an army. So the chemical, uh, the, the stimulant decree was issued in April 1940 and the Temla company received order by the Wehrmacht of 35 million dosages of methamphetamine. They were speedily shipped to German you know, troops and then on May 10th when they invaded the West, they were taken. And actually that uh, enabled or contributed to extremely fast advance that the Germans were then able to uh, put forward and, and uh, let contributed to the victorious campaign and the actual, you know, invention of the so-called Blitzkrieg war. Yeah, it's an absolutely crazy story. I mean, uh, it's, it's really impressive. You have a, an enormous amount of really fascinating sources that you describe in the book. Uh, I'm assuming, you know, a lot of them are from uh, the uh, diaries from soldiers who were, you know, describing how they felt when they were, uh, you know, driving uh, tanks or, or other vehicles um, as fast as they could through, uh, through uh, enemy territory. It, it's really a quite impressive at the same time i'm just curious how common was the use of pervitin at the home front within germany well i mean it was a popular product um it was re 
reportedly it was used among all flights of life. So factory workers used it to increase their output in you know car mm. factories. Housewives uh, used it to um, make the house clean. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a, a pervitin, methamphetamine-laced chocolate on the market called Hildebrand, which contained nine milligrams of methamphetamine per little chocolate unit, which is quite a lot, actually. Mm. Artists used it. Uh, writers used it. Actors used it. It, it was... It was pretty widespread. I mean, the, the really the, the, the clean numbers uh, we actually have from the army because the uh, the orders of the Wehrmacht uh, survived. Mm. Um, so I could study those. So I could not give you a total number of pavitine units that were consumed uh, at the home front. But it right. was it was widely accepted and widely available. You didn't even need a prescription to buy it in the pharmacy until November 1939 when this health minister Conti turned it into a prescription drug which then actually increased production and consumption for some reason so mm -hmm. he was never able to curb the, the German appetite for the stimulant but also there was no other stimulant around really I mean coffee right. was not available at the time it only became available more and more when Germany invaded France and, and, and took all the, Fran the French coffee supplies. So before that time, what could you take to have a little boost? So you took methamphetamine. Apparently, yeah. It's a crazy story. Your description of the drug use of Adolf Hitler personally is, yeah, probably maybe the most remarkable, but also most controversial part of your book. Can you just describe maybe in uh, how how Hitler came to to consume a decent amount of drugs and yeah may, maybe um, address you know the, the the question of to what extent you know the, chronicling this is potentially controversial. Well, Hitler was portrayed by the NS system as a kind of health saint. Uh, he mm. was at, he was at the center of the Nazi propaganda about clean and pure living and being. So it was made very clear, and it was actually a fact, it was not a lie that Hitler was not consuming any poisons, at least in the beginning from 1933 onwards, all the way through the 30s. He was um, portrayed as a vegetarian, as a, uh, a teetotaler, basically a non-drinker, non never drank alcohol, didn't smoke, didn't even drink coffee or tea. Um, and this continued also into his private life. He had no private life, basically. That was the propaganda, at least. Obviously, he had a private life. He had a, a partner, a long-term partner, but she was hidden. Uh, Hitler was portrayed as just being like an instrument for the German people, just serving his country, um, basically. And um, he was totally obsessed with a healthy lifestyle. That is a fact. And when he met um, the number one vitamin uh, pioneer of uh, Germany, who, who was, his name is uh, Theo Morell. He was a doctor, uh, practitioner in Berlin. Um, he became interested in Morell's uh, ways of treating his patients, which was using probiotics and vitamins. And quite quickly, uh, Hitler took a liking to this doctor and appointed him as his personal physician. Mm -hmm. This was in 1936 at a spaghetti dinner in Munich, a private dinner that um, 
Hoffmann hosted, the photographer of Hitler, who, who was a patient of Morel and had the idea to connect these two men. Um, so from 1936 onward to April, I think 23rd of 1945, Morel was the personal physician of Hitler and spent more time with Hitler than, than anybody else. Um, so they had a very close relationship. They were, I would suppose, you could call it friends, or I mean, a very, you know, intimate, very intimate with, with each other, basically met every day. And um, the intimacy played itself out in the numerous injections that Morel gave uh, to Hitler because Morel believed that the best application of a drug or of a medicine or of a vitamin or a probiotic is through the syringe because it's the fastest application. Hitler was convinced by this application because he always said, I don't have enough time to wait until a pill starts to take effect. I need to mm. have the effect within a few seconds, which is what you get through an injection. And from 1936 onwards, he received... Um, by on average one injection a day sometimes two sometimes there was a day without an injection but he re constantly received injections and these injections um, can be studied uh, quite uh, accurately actually because Morel uh, meticulously wrote down um, what he gave to Hitler in his into his uh, personal notes into the onto the onto the patient cards that he kept for mm. Hitler, which he labeled as patient X, uh, patient A. Patient B was was Eva Braun. Patient X actually was Ribbentrop, the foreign secretary. Mm -hmm. uh, Morel later had more patients, but in the beginning he had just patient A. Basically, he neglected his Berlin practice uh, and uh, focused on Hitler. And um, these notes are, are are quite interesting because they're so detailed. So it cannot be actually controversial what he gave to Hitler because this is very well documented. Mm -hmm. Controversial might be the implications of those medicines, um, but let's let's stick to what he actually gave to Hitler because that's quite right. interesting. From 1936 to 1941, um, he basically focused on vitamins and harmless health, uh, improving or you know supporting substances um but mostly vitamins actually and, and and glucose so it was something seemed to have been a placebo or but hitler just got used to these injection he called it uh, instant recovery he said i need my instant recovery now so morale gave him an injection and hitler was mm. fine but then in 41 for the first time since morale had been his personal physician he was not fine in the august of 1941 when the uh, attack against the soviet union had gained uh, momentum uh, and uh, had actually encountered heavy resistance by the Red Army. There was a dispute among the German leadership. The high command um, wanted to advance on Moscow and uh, capture Moscow, while Hitler wanted to divide the troops, go towards Leningrad in the north and towards the oil fields in the south. Uh, didn't think that Moscow was so important. And uh, right when this decision had to be made about the future of the advance, Hitler became ill. He had the so-called Russian flu, dysentery, high fever, and couldn't get out of bed and demanded from Morel to give him something stronger than just vitamins. And Morel gave him an opioid for the first time and a half synthetic mm. opiate. And um, this was so strong that Hitler was able to rise out of bed and go to the military briefing and command, you know, continue to command the, the advance. Uh, and this is kind of a turning point because Hitler from that moment on became interested in those stronger remedies. Um, and, um, but he still wasn't 
a full-on opioid consumer as he became in the late phase of the war. But from 1941 to 43 onwards, he became more and more experimental in his own, you know, self-dosaging of uh, medications. He was quite interested in, in different medications and Morel also was interested in experimenting. So they, they used quite a lot of steroids and hor hormonal concoctions during this time that then Morel fabricated himself in a, in a factory that he uh, bought from the, its former Jewish owners for a very good price. So Morel became sort of pharmaceutical entrepreneur Right. Um, he was he was mostly interested then in these hormone concoctions like pigs pigs liver extracts and uh, extracts of thyroid glances from other slaughtered animals. He had the monopoly at one point of all the organs of all the slaughtered animals in Germany, occupied Ukraine, and actually became quite rich in making these. I would say dubious and crazy uh, medications. And the, the, the craziest thing in a way is that Hitler was became a volu volunteer to, to test all these uh, substances before they were introduced into the German market. So Hitler was um, being pumped full with these very strange things for two, two to three years, which I think ruined his health because uh, he mm. developed probably an autoimmune, uh, autoimmune uh, disease. Um, and then in 1943, uh, before a meeting with Mussolini in July 1943, uh, for the first time he takes a medicine that then should become his favorite medicine. This is Oikodal. It was a German, a German brand name by the Merck company, which is nothing, nothing else than uh, what today is called oxycodone mm -hmm. uh, in America. It was at the time a German product. And Hitler received it for the first time before this meeting with Mussolini, where he was uh, felt very bad and was nervous because Mussolini wanted to leave the Axis and wanted to become neutral. And Hitler thought this was betrayal and didn't want to take the meeting because he was afraid of this conflict with Mussolini. And then he, Morel gave him Oikodal for the first time and Hitler became extremely euphoric, extremely charismatic, which he had been, you know, naturally anyhow, but he had kind of lost his charisma over time, especially as the war went so went so bad for Germany. So he, with his Oikodal, he was actually able to regain some of this charisma. And then we can see, if we look at the nose of morale, that this Oikodal becomes a bigger and bigger factor in Hitler's life. Um, for example, in September of 1944, he uses 20 milligrams of Oikodal intravenously every second day, uh, which is nothing else than what a hardcore junkie would do. Mm -hmm. um, Oikodal uh, mainlined in this fashion is stronger than heroin. So um, I call Hitler in uh, my book, I call him a junkie and I think rightly so. So I don't know if that's controversial. I mean, it's obviously uh, an extreme um, description, but um, what I saw in the, in the Federal Archives of Germany, when I looked at the, um, the notes of, of Morel, is very extreme. Absolutely. I, th I mean, you make it very clear in your book too, right? That none of this in any way reduces the culpability of either Hitler himself or anyone else uh, who was um, an active political operative or bureaucratic operative in this regime. 
but it's nevertheless an absolutely fascinating and uh, an insightful story. And I suppose the question, like, to what extent did these things um, worsen, you know, judgment by Hitler himself or any other person with um, executive authority to to whatever extent? That that's an impossible question to answer. But I think this is an immensely fascinating piece of history that uh, that you're telling here and uh, i must say i read this with uh, the the second half of your book i read within an afternoon and i must say i felt slightly sick afterwards uh, which is meant as a tremendous compliment uh your description of this uh, mutually parasitic relationship between between hitler and morel his his personal doctor um and and you know the continuous drug consumption it's yeah, very impressive, uh, engagingly written, and it really takes you on a ride, um, a trip, I suppose. And yeah, I, I must really say I can I can wholeheartedly recommend the book. Well, thank you. It was actually um, I actually had similar experiences when I wrote it because the the, <laughs> the, I mean, the underlying source material that I found in the archives was so fascinating that it was you know obviously not easy to write because it's never easy to write, but it was a rich, I could draw from very rich resources for this um, story around um, around Nazi Germany and especially Hitler. Yeah. But Norman Oler, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long, and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Bitchduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.